Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lyra, and today I have a story about a woman who literally had all the potential in the world and she did absolutely nothing with it but turn out to be a really big bitch. Before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer Podcast. I love doing this. I love having a group of people to talk about these stories with. So thank you for joining me. If you haven't already, go ahead and pop on in and leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast at. Don't forget I'm on YouTube if you just want to kind of hang out with me while I get ready and talk candidly about these stories. Um, it's less of a deep dive. It's more of me just being me. And don't forget to check out Storytime Slayer on Facebook and Story underscore Time underscore Slayer on Instagram. To support this podcast, I have opened up a merch store. But hey, if that's not for you, any kind of like or share to any of the podcast content on social media is really helpful or just tell your friends. Okay, let's jump in though. So today we're talking about Deborah Green. She was originally from Havana, Illinois, born February of 1951. So that would make her 44 when this crime happened and 71 today. Now, Deborah has an older sister, so that would make Deborah the baby. And Deborah was extremely intelligent. She was involved in school activities and made co valedictorian in high school. She majored in chemistry at the University of Illinois, graduating in 1972. And from there, she decided to go to medical school. So this is how she ends up in Kansas. From 1972 to 1975, she attends the University of Kansas School of Medicine. And she actually chose emergency trauma to specialize in initially. So Deborah's maiden name is Jones, but she goes by Green because she'd briefly been married. It says briefly, but I mean, she married an engineer named Dwayne Green sometime between 1972 and 75, but the pair were separated and divorced in 1978. That is like a really hazy timeline, but that's the most I can find on it. Apparently, they were just incompatible and the divorce was amicable. So while that ink was drying, Deborah wasted no time. She met a man in his last year of medical school named Michael Farrar. They got married May 26 of 1979, and Michael landed a job in Cincinnati, Ohio. So the couple moves there, and a short time later, Deb changes her medical practice specialty to internal medicine. Remember, she was working in emergency medicine. So Deborah had minor illnesses that she suffered from. Um, she had an injured wrist that got infected and required surgery. She'd get debilitating migraines and was said to have had insomnia, meaning she couldn't sleep at night very well. The couple has their first child, a boy named Timothy, January of 1982. And then Deborah switched her medical specialty again from internal medicine to hematology and oncology. In 1985, Deb gives birth to a second child, a girl named Kate, and she completed her studies of oncology and hematology in the meantime, while Michael chose to specialize in cardiology. Two doctors. I can't imagine having my parents both be doctors. So once Deb was finished with her studies, the couple decided to move to Kansas City, Missouri, because they both had jobs at an established medical practice. About a year 
after Deb broke out on her own and she started a practice, which totally thrived until she became pregnant with her third child, Kelly, who was born December of 1988. So let's talk. Deborah is said to have been a doting mom. The children attended private school. They participated in lots of extracurricular activities. Some people describe Deb as a wonderful mom, and some people think that she pushed her kids too hard. In 1992, Deb's chronic pains and failing medical practice inspired her to quit her job and become a homemaker. Now, she still did a couple things part-time, like she processed Medicaid and she did medical professional evaluations. However, throughout her career, some of the medical professionals that worked with Deb and alongside her said she had very poor bedside manner and seemed to be obsessed with her husband. Deb seemed very emotionally immature and was prone to fits of rage. According to Michael, Deb's husband, he thought she was self-medicating at times to the point that she was like literally getting high from taking pills. Um, She'd be getting tore up, y'all. He said it would affect her speech, her writing, Everything, you know, just like noticeably inebriated. Michael had to repeatedly ask her to stop. And each time he confronted her about, you know, self-medicating, she would admit to it. And then she'd promise that she'd stop. Michael says the marriage was never perfect. They didn't have like a big cozy love nest. And it doesn't sound to me like Michael was ever really head over heels for Deb. Um, He said she was prone to throwing fits that escalated into her totally raging. Like she would break shit. She'd harm herself. She would just fly off the handle, even in public, even in public. And Michael said by the 90s, he was just choosing to work long hours and stay away from her in the house as much as possible. Deb honestly was not the best homemaker either. Um, I guess that was a big point of contention for Michael. She was unorganized, didn't keep the house super clean, no consistent hot meals on the table, things like that. But things got really bad between them. Now, Deb thought Michael was having an affair, but really Michael wasn't having an affair yet. He was just trying to avoid Deb all the time. And when she started to get upset, she decided to start using the kids against Michael. And uh, sometimes it'd work. Like she would tell the kids, you know, just like shitty things about him. And his son, who was 13 when everything came to a head, He would sometimes become physically aggressive towards his dad because his mom, Deb, would rile them up to not like him. I don't know specifics of what she said to the children. I just know that she was saying shit about Michael so that the kids would get mad at him. And like literally his son would sometimes try and hit him. So eventually Michael did ask for a divorce in 1994 and the couple separated for four months But they eventually reconciled and they were going to buy a really big, nice house together as like a fresh start. But Michael, for some reason, just didn't want to pull the plug on this. However, they did end up getting a new house together. It wasn't the big fancy one they were going to buy, but it was still a new house because their house caught fire from a faulty electrical outlet. It was totally beyond repairable. And so they got a payout from the insurance company and that's what they bought their new home with. Like I said, it was like a fresh start. The couple was back together and Deb for a while did keep the new house clean. She cooked meals. She was nicer. It's like she decided, okay, I'm going to really do it. I'm going to do the Susie homemaker thing. 
But I mean, within months that faded and it was back to the same shit as before. And Michael was like, oh my God, I have to divorce her. Like we have to get divorced. This is not working. But (laughs) they had planned a family trip to Peru in the summer of 1995. And Michael was like, okay, I'm going to hold off till after the trip. We'll do the trip together and then I'll tell her I want to get a divorce. The trip was um, some sort of trip with other students and parents from their kids' private schools. Now, while on the trip, Michael met a lady named Margaret Hacker. Hacker was an RN married to an anesthesiologist, and she also had her own set of fucked up things in her marriage. So, of course, Michael and Margaret don't just become friends. When the trip to Peru was over, they became lovers. So, Michael did finally start having an affair. Now, I don't know exactly when. I want to say August. Michael builds up the courage when they get back from Peru and he tells Deb that he wants a divorce. And of course, like he thought she would, she lost her shit, y'all. And he knew she would. She would randomly self-medicate. She had known anger problems. Um, But despite this, he tells her and he continues to stay living in the home, though, while they figure out what they're going to do. So it's not like he packed a bag and went and got his own place and was like, I'm leaving you. He just straight up told her like, hey, I want to get a divorce and thought they would figure it out together. Right now, this is when Deb starts drinking heavily. And he said that he stayed in the house longer like he didn't go get in his own place because of Deb's heavy drinking he was afraid of her being really intoxicated and taking care of their kids at this point they have 13 year old Timmy 10 year old Kate and six year old Kelly Michael does eventually move out because he felt his life was in danger and it was no longer safe for him to live with Deb so what could possibly be so bad that Michael feared for his own safety over staying in the home to take care of his kids because Deb's becoming a big mean drunk let's dive into that so here's what led to him moving out after the Peru trip and I'm gonna assume this is after Michael tells Deb he wants a divorce Michael gets a really bad spell of diarrhea and vomiting. He assumed it was a bug or traveler's diarrhea because several other people from the Peru trip did get traveler's diarrhea after returning home. So about after a week, it goes away, but then it comes back a week later. The second time, Michael became so sick that he had to be hospitalized. This was August 18th, and he was hospitalized for severe dehydration and a spiked fever. While in the hospital, he gets sepsis, which is some bullshit. So they take care of the sepsis, but they cannot figure out what originally caused the severe gastrointestinal illness that Michael was exhibiting, which landed him in the hospital to begin with. Regardless of what caused it, he does eventually recover and he gets released from the hospital on August 25th. He goes and he has dinner with his family in their family home. And he immediately begins suffering severe diarrhea and vomiting and has to return to the hospital where he has to stay several more days. So he gets released again, but only days after his release does he have to return to the hospital and stay a third time for severe vomiting and diarrhea again. Now, for whatever reasons, doctors are trying to tie this inexplicable illness with Michael's international travel to Peru, but it just wasn't matching any diagnosis that they could come up with. 
Michael chimed in he would be perfectly fine when he left the hospital, but almost immediately became sick after leaving. His theory was the stress of his disintegrating marriage was causing him to like basically make himself sick with stress. And also the diet change from eating bland hospital food to getting out of the hospital and eating regular food. So he's just damn spitballing, right? He's just trying to figure out what's going on. However, Michael's girlfriend, okay, Miss Hacker, she hypothesized that Deb was actually poisoning Michael. And after his girlfriend said that, Michael initially wrote it off and was like, Deb's, come on, she's not poisoning me, right? But then one day, Michael decided to go ahead and look through Deb's purse and bedroom and stuff. And this was in late September. And in Deb's purse, Michael found seed packets for castor beans, a copy of an anonymous letter urging Michael not to divorce Deb, and empty bottles of potassium chloride. So he takes all this stuff and he hides it. And then he asks Deb about it. Side note. Castor bean seeds contain a very toxic substance known as ricin, and it only takes 5 to 10 micrograms per kilogram to be deadly. So to put that into perspective, there's a 1,000 grams in a kilogram, and there's a million micrograms in one gram. So you literally only need 5 to 10 micrograms per 1 billion micrograms, right? Like that's a very small amount, very poisonous substance. So... When Michael returns to question Deb about the seeds and, you know, the the no and everything in her purse, she says that she wants to plant the seeds outside for like a garden, which was bullshit. Michael knew it was bullshit because Deb was not a gardener and he wasn't buying it. So then Deb changes her story and she says, okay, I wanted to use the seeds to kill myself. I want to kill myself with them. So Michael believes her and he calls police and told them that his, you know, soon to be ex-wife is having some sort of nervous breakdown and seems suicidal. And he's calling for help to commit Deb to like some type of medical psychiatric unit. Now, when police get there, Deb is freaking pissed. Okay. And the police can tell she's mad. Michael and the children are extremely shaken up. And despite what Michael's telling police about Deb saying she wanted to kill herself, when officers spoke to Deb, she totally denied that. She did not. She was like, no, I'm not suicidal. Then Michael shows the police the things that he'd found in her purse and how her explanation was that she was suicidal. And Michael genuinely thought Deb was possibly wanting to kill herself. The police don't know, though, if this is a domestic argument that they've walked into or if Deb really needs a psychiatric intervention. So they settle on taking Deb to the ER. Deb had obviously been drinking that day because you could smell it on her, but she wasn't like visibly inebriated. You know, she's not stumbling. She's not slurring. You can just smell alcohol on her breath. Deb told the doctors that she was not suicidal. She did not want to hurt herself or others. And Deb wasn't really well kept either, but the doctors chalked this whole situation up to the divorce. Deb was just a distraught woman depressed about her divorce. They were convinced that she was not a harm to herself or anybody else. However, before Deb's released, Michael gets to the hospital and Deb goes berserk. She's cussing. She's screaming at Michael and she screams, you will get the children over our dead bodies. 
the sudden about face that Deb did in front of the doctors when she saw Michael made them take a second thought and they decided, okay, I think Deb does need to stay and get an evaluation. So doctors actually talked Deb into staying for a voluntary commitment. And during this voluntary commitment, she is diagnosed with bipolar and suicidal tendencies. And she has to stay in this hospital for four days. It was after Deb returns from the hospital that Michael immediately moves out of the home And he only decided this because while Deb was gone, he did extensive research on castor beans and found out that his girlfriend was right. Deb was poisoning him. The month following Deb's hospitalization and leading up to the crime, she is said to have continued drinking heavily while taking medication. So she's getting tore up. Michael figuring out Deb's poisoning him, calling the police, her going to the psychiatric unit. All of this is one month prior to the crime, just so that we're all caught up. After midnight on October 24th, when a neighbor of the house Deb and the kids still lived in calls Michael at his apartment and tells Michael his family house is on fire. The family had an emergency fire alarm system in their home and police received a hang up 911 phone call at 1220 in the morning from the family's home line and emergency services were sent. So when police arrived, only Deb and the middle child, 10 year old Kate, were standing outside the home. Six year old Kelly and 13 year old Timmy remained inside. Firefighters attempted to enter the home, but the house had completely been engulfed in flames and it became unsafe. The structure was about to collapse. They didn't get there in time. Sadly, both Timmy and Kate die in this fire. Kate's remains look to have been found on her bed like she'd been lying in the fetal position and likely died of smoke inhalation. Tim was first thought to be on the ground in the kitchen like he was crawling to escape and just didn't make it. But later they realized that spot was actually where Tim's bedroom was on the upstairs floor and he had actually fallen through the floor when it collapsed from the fire and into the kitchen downstairs. So he too was in his bedroom, not in the kitchen. Police and fire chiefs started what they thought would be a standard investigation and questioned Deb. Deb said that they had a normal day, the kids went to school, they came home, they did their chores, and then the usual after-school activities. Michael took Tim and Kelly to a hockey game, while Deb took Kate to dance class. Michael dropped the kids off after the hockey game because, remember, he moved out and had his own apartment. And Deb said by 9 p.m., the kids and her are all back home, they have dinner, and then they go to bed. The children do. She says the girls went to bed first, Tim went to bed between 10 and 11 o'clock, and Deb stayed up to have one or two drinks before she went to bed around 11.30, but she was woken up sometime after midnight by the family's fire alarm system. She initially thought this was a false alarm until she opened her bedroom door and saw it was extremely smoky in the house. So she exits the house from her master bedroom, which is on the ground level of this two-story home. She has like a back door and deck, I'm assuming. And the family had an intercom system, and apparently Tim called to his mom in her room on the intercom and asked her what to do because he was trapped upstairs and the house was on fire. And she told her son just to wait for the rescue team. 
In the meantime, Deb went to a neighbor's house to have them dial 911. Her hair was damp as if she just showered maybe. And then she ran back to her house where she saw her 10-year-old daughter, Kate, on top of the roof of the garage. Kate had climbed out of her bedroom window. And so Deb told her, jump, 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 and I'll catch you. Now, Deb did not catch her. It's speculated that Deb just was hoping the fall would injure Kate or something, but that's just a thought that people have. Then emergency responders arrived, and so like I said, the house at this point was completely engulfed in flames, and responders were unable to get inside to save Tim and Kelly. Knowing that Tim and Kelly likely perished in the fire, but waiting for confirmation, Both Michael and Deb go to the police station. I think they're kept separate, though, but they do go there just for standard questioning. Remember, police initially thought all this was just going to be a standard investigation. It didn't start as a criminal investigation. So officers did note, though, from the time they arrived on scene, even at the police station afterwards, Deb was strangely cool, calm, and collected. She wasn't really grieving. In fact, it was reported that she'd been referring to her children by their ages like my my 13 year old or the 10 year old and she'd even begun referring to her children in the past tense already very odd behavior given the circumstances but she was nothing less than cooperative and friendly which even that behavior was kind of odd to them given the circumstances. So it's about 5.30 a.m. and an officer came to the station to report that Tim and Kelly were officially found deceased inside the home. I guess, like I said, Deb was still at the police station and she flew into a rage when they gave her the news, like one of her big manic episodes. Um, This friendly and calm Deb just became a totally different person. She was yelling and screaming and telling the investigators that they were pathetic. She was blaming the fire department for not getting in there and doing more. And she insisted that she needed to be the one to talk to Michael and tell him that the children died in the fire. But police, no, they were like, no, no. So police released her that morning. Um, Her house was burned down. So she actually tried to see if Michael would let her stay at his apartment and he refused. Um, But he supposedly gave her cash so she could get a hotel room. So she goes in and gets in a hotel. And I don't know if she calls her divorce attorney Ellen Ryan or if Ellen Ryan found her to check on her but regardless um, her attorney goes and sees Deb at this hotel and she does not think that Deb is of sound mind so Deb ends up going to a hospital for a mental evaluation so Michael's at the police station already waiting on confirmation on Timmy and Kelly and at 6 20 a.m police spoke to Michael and they did confirm in fact that his children's deceased bodies were found inside of the home after the fire subsided So Michael tells police everything about his marriage, the alleged poisoning, every little detail leading up to the fire. And he corroborated that, yes, he'd in fact taken the kids to a hockey game that evening of the fire. He dropped them off and went to dinner with his girlfriend at 845. Then Michael left the date and he got to his apartment at about 1115. After 1115, Michael and Deb exchanged a series of phone calls that turned into an argument right 
Michael had said that he was just calling to check on everything because he knew Deb was a heavy drinker. But then um, the argument took a turn when Michael accused Deb of drinking too much and attempting to murder him. And Michael was like threatening to take custody of the kids. And I mean, these phone calls got both Michael and Deb riled up. So after they quit arguing, Michael just watched TV and that's when a neighbor called him at 1220 in the morning to notify him that his family home was on fire. In the police interview, Michael was obviously red-eyed from crying, very shaken up, very different demeanor than Deb. He said Deb may have done this for insurance money because, I mean, they had that one house fire a long time ago. I don't know if Deb's ever like accused of intentionally setting that old house fire, the first one. Or if that first fire was just her inspiration for her crime. Now, Michael left the police station and immediately filed for divorce in custody of Kate. Temporary custody was awarded to Michael's parents. And both Michael and Deb were granted visitations until the divorce and custody agreement could be made. Michael got normal visitations, whereas Deb's visitations were supervised. On October 26, 10-year-old Kate talked to police and she said she was the one who placed the hang-up 911 call. She woke up, she smelled smoke or something, she opens her door, sees smoke, yells to Timmy to wake up, shuts her door again, calls 911, gets an operator, hangs up, and then climbs out of her window. Done. She sees her mom approaching from the neighbor's yard and her mom tells her to jump down and said that she'll catch her. Remember now Deb didn't catch her. And Kate was really confused why her brother Tim did not crawl out of his window. But remember in Deb's interview, she said herself, oh, Tim asked me what to do and I told him just to stay in his room. What a, f- anyway. So a multi-agency task force is pulled together for an extensive arson investigation. They were able to rule out the most common causes of accidental fires, such as like electric panels, furnaces, gas leaks, etc. And then they found these poor patterns. A flammable liquid had been poured all over the house and a significant amount in the upstairs hallway that clearly blocked the stairs. However, this flammable liquid clearly stopped at the door of the master bedroom. They could not determine exactly what this flammable liquid was, though. Also, investigators found multiple baby fires that were started in the basement, like someone had been intentionally starting these little mini fires that would slowly lead to all the spilled flammables in the basement. Deb said that her bedroom was shut in her interview and briefly left open. However, the smoke pattern on Deb's door indicated that it was open a significant amount of time during the fire. So October 27th, investigators are pretty sure that this is now a criminal investigation. Let's see. We have a messy divorce and a potential custody battle. Michael is insinuating that Deb is mentally unstable and heavily self-medicating, also accusing her of poisoning him, which is pretty serious. And Deb is presenting herself as a depressed woman that's just going through a really bitter divorce. They have to both be ruled out. So police initially think to look over Michael and Deb's clothing that they wore the night of the fire. Whomever lit this fire had a big burst of flame that likely singed them. Michael had no sign of singeing, not his hair, his eyebrows, eyelashes, nothing. Whereas Deb had a significant singeing of her hair. 
And Deb had said herself in her interview that she did not come into close contact with the fire. She saw smoke and went out her side door. So this is suspicious. Deb's looking really suspicious for this crime, but it's not quite enough evidence. Police turn their attention to Deb and they decide to investigate the poisoning of Michael. They have the seed packet that Michael took from Deb's purse and on the packet is a label from a chain of stores called Earl May. They start cold calling these stores to speak with employees and see if anybody had any recollection of a woman buying castor bean seeds. A store clerk does recall a woman buying 10 packets for a supposed school project. The store clerk identified Deb in a photo lineup as the buyer, and police were able to corroborate the purchase of 10 seed packets and the register history on either September 20th or September 22nd. So remember, Michael became sick much earlier than September 20th, though. So my guess is she had a smaller purchase of these seeds, and that's why Michael was becoming incredibly sick, but not deceased. Um, If he'd had a couple more meals with her, he'd probably be dead by the amount of seed packets she bought. November of 1995, Michael actually had to get an aneurysm treated that was likely caused from ricin poisoning. So before he undergoes the surgery, blood samples were taken from him to test for ricin antibodies. In November, information just keeps spilling out into the media that police had a single subject believed to be the person of interest in the fire at Deb's home. Then the media leaked that the poisoning of a cardiologist was believed to be linked to the deadly arson case. Deb had an attorney that said, okay, if you guys decide to arrest Deb, please give us notice. She is willing to turn herself in. Basically, I mean, all the news reports were pointing to Deb. Everything's pointing to Deb. But the police were afraid to tip Deb off and allow her to turn herself in because she's so shysty. So instead, they arrest her with no warning on November 22nd after she dropped her daughter off at ballet. Deb was technically in Missouri when she was arrested, but she gets transferred back to Johnson County Detention Center on a $3 million bond. So I couldn't find exactly why, but I'm assuming, okay, remember the couple first moved to Kansas City, Missouri, and then when they bought the second home, I believe they bought this home in Kansas. I'm assuming they live somewhere along the border of Kansas and Missouri, like the case I just did a couple weeks ago. Anyway, so she needs to be tried in Kansas is my point. January of 1996, they start her trial process. See, first it was just an evidentiary hearing to determine if there was enough evidence to proceed with a trial. And Deb's defense was literally just that she didn't poison Michael or start the fire. She blamed her deceased son, Tim. Apparently, Tim had once been caught by police setting off Molotov cocktails. Okay, and that's when someone shoves something into the top of a bottle of alcohol, lights it on fire, and then throws it. The second reason Deb had for blaming Tim is Tim did a lot of the cooking around the house. Wow, this is fucked up. So on top of that, neighbors and a nanny testified about times they'd caught Tim lighting things on fire like grass and little things. However, it wasn't concerning enough at the time that anyone ever reported it or expressed concern about it. There was also testimony that people had overheard Tim cursing and complaining that he hated his father, but I just think it's really fucked up that they would even 
blame a 13 year old boy who died in this fire and his mom said she told him to stay in the house I just think that's so low Michael took the stand as a key witness for the prosecution and he outlined everything that happened in the marriage the separation the alleged poisoning the antibody tests that came back positive and indicated Michael had repeated exposure to rice and poisoning so that's pretty strong testimony against her An officer testified that when he arrived on the scene, October 24th, 10-year-old Kate was frantic and clearly worried about her siblings, whereas Deb was extremely cool, calm, and collected. Deb's defense claimed the medications prescribed to Deb after the stint in the mental hospital September contributed to her lack of emotions. Of course, all the forensic evidence about the fire was presented, as well as the taped interviews of Michael and Deb the night of the fire. It was evident that Deb's testimony the night of the fire was just odd. Um, In the tapes, Deb said herself that her son called for her on the family intercom system about what to do because the house was on fire. And Deb said, stay in your room and wait for help. She was also referring to her children in past tense, extremely calm. It just wasn't adding up with her defense that Tim did it. So February 1st, 1996, the judge decides that there is, in fact, enough evidence to go to trial. And there was probable cause that Deborah Green poisoned Michael and started the fire that killed her children. Her arraignment was set for February 8th. The prosecution was pretty set on going for the death penalty. In the meantime, Deb's defense team decided to do an investigation of their own, hoping to disprove the state's evidence. However, they came to the same conclusions. One, an accelerant had been used. And two, they discovered that in Deb's master bathroom, a robe was recovered and it was burned in a way that looked like whomever had been wearing this robe had been the one setting all those little baby fires in the basement. And the robe belonged to Deb and was found in her master bathroom. When Deb's divorce attorney, Ellen, confronted her to explain this, Deb broke down and confessed to the crime. She started the fire, but she claims she has no actual memory of the event. Deb will still not admit to the poisoning of Michael and said it had to have been her son, Tim. With all of this coming to light, Deb's defense notified the prosecution that they wanted to strike a plea deal. So April 17th, Deborah Green went to court and pled no contest to two counts of capital murder for the death of Kelly and Timmy, two attempted first degree murders for Michael and Kate, and one charge of arson. Deborah was formally sentenced May 30th, 1996 to two concurrent 40-year sentences and credited the 190 days that she'd already been in jail. So she's sitting in the Topeka Correctional Facility. The earliest she can be released is November 21st of 2035. Deb is believed to have a borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. For those who knew her, they were completely shocked that she'd done these things, and it had to be a personality disorder. She is said to have not been able to compartmentalize and handle stress like a mature adult would. She was immature. She was prone to throwing fits of rage. It is believed Deborah was obviously undergoing mental health issues combined with alcohol and wanting revenge against Mike. In that moment, she was likely experiencing a fit of rage and killed her children as a means to get back at her husband, Michael. Michael continued working as a cardiologist for the North City Hospital. He did not end up marrying the nurse that he met on the Peru trip, but he did eventually get remarried to a lawyer. 
Kate did eventually go live with her father and his new wife after living with Michael's parents for a while. And she has since grown up and gotten married. She should now be in her late 30s and is said to live in Kansas City, Missouri. Anne Rule wrote a book. I love Anne Rule books about Deborah Green's crime. It's called Bitter Harvest. There's tons of shows about this. Um, like Deadly Women, Forensic Files both have episodes out. Plus Lifetime did a movie about this case called House on Fire. My mom loves Lifetime movies. Um, Deborah did initially fight for a new trial until she realized that they would want to charge her with the death penalty. And so she withdrew. Anyway, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. I'm so excited that it's almost summer here, and I hope you guys have a good week. Bye.